Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Noise, the podcast series from PR Week. I'm Frankie Oliver, your host and founder of New Society, and today I'm joined by three special guests. Alex Myers, founder of Manifest, Dan Neal, founder of Alfred, and Dean Connolly, also founder of Latte Recruitment. Hello to you all. Hi. Hi. Hello. Welcome. So you may have guessed from this amazing lineup of guests um, that we are going to talk about a topic that is always hot in the communications industry, and that is talent and recruitment. We know the great resignation post-COVID has put huge pressure on all businesses and created a big talent crisis across the communications industry. Now, in the midst of a cost of living crisis and an economic downturn, we are keen to see if the industry and its people potentially face a whole new set of talent and recruitment issues. So first to Alex, how acute do you think PR's recruitment challenges today versus maybe even six to 12 months ago? I mean, it's strange, isn't it? Because I think as a macro subject, recruitment of talent is probably the number one priority for any business in our category because all we have is the talent that we have, you know, in the building. So in a sense, it's unchanged in that it's priority number one. Um, you know, it's the driver of the quality of the work. It's the driver of the kind of ambition of the agency. So in that sense, it, it's not changed. But I think a lot of the individual challenges, a lot of the variables that come with that kind of talent acquisition question um, are, are far more um, acute than they previously were, I guess. So, you know, certainly the, there's a dearth of talent in certain areas. I think with, there's also questions around diversity, equality and inclusion, the social mobility. Do you feel that the great resignation has ended in the communications industry? I think it is, it's interesting the economic situation that caused the great resignation as it was known to happen is, you know, essentially people reevaluating their jobs as 
they came out of a COVID lockdown when they they potentially realized that the work can be so much more to them or needs to be so much more to them, but also their life means so much more and that they want to be able to blend them the two. And but I, I do worry with the macroeconomic situation at the minute where you're looking at, you know, especially the larger agencies potentially looking at tightening their belts. Um, you have a lot of recruits that joined on an inflated salary period um, that have been here for less than two years. And there's a huge swathe of people that are massively in, in those certainly those larger network agencies on a spreadsheet. It look, it, you know, if you're looking to make your margins, then reducing that number down is, um, you know, is much simpler and a way to, to make your margins than trying to grow in, a, in an economic downturn. So what was the great resignation could easily become the great redundancy. Um, and I think, you know, from a candidate's perspective, it's a, it's a really worrying situation, um, especially if you're looking at smaller and independent agencies where the same thing's not going to happen on a redundancy level, but they might be more conscious about hiring. Um, you know, you've got a slower recruitment market. You've got this pool of people entering it from a redundancy rather than a choice perspective. And it could be a really difficult situation. And do you feel that we're in the same place that we were in terms of, you know, really fighting for talent? Or do you feel that's evening out a bit post the great resignation? I think it, it's leveling off. I think there was far more um, jobs than candidates for a long time there, I think, because there was a lot of movement in the, in the jobs market. And I think it is steadying. It's also a time of year. Um, I think people tend to settle down pre-Christmas and look for new roles after Christmas. So I think as you move into the autumn, it always naturally steadies. But I think there's just an uncertainty um, that's that's driven that stability as well. But I think just post-COVID, the recruitment market's completely changed compared to what it was previously, certainly in my experience. Dan, what would you say? Would you agree? I think that certainly over the past six months, it's you know, looking at some of the variable challenges that you're talking about, I think some of those have become a bit easier. There's, there's a bigger pool of talent now that are looking to change roles. Obviously, you know, during the kind of post, you can't really say post-COVID, is it post-COVID? Where are we at? Um, but kind of in the kind of post-lockdown world, um, we it, it was a real struggle because there was less talent looking for roles and it was hard to fill the roles available and so i think what we've certainly seen in the kind of recent months is that that's kind of rebalancing um so would you say there's a sense of normality more now than there was when there was just an acute talent situation possibly post i'm going to say post covid i'm going to say that post hellscape yeah yeah i mean i think i think there is more of a normality but i think Everyone, you know, kind of in the industry and beyond is going to be thinking about kind of what, what's next. You know, we've got the cost of living crisis. We've got, you know, kind of stories that we're all hearing about kind of the bigger agency groups starting to cost cut, um, which again is going to potentially push more talent back into the talent pool um, and kind of looking at the broader impact of that. And then I think, you know, some of the stuff that, you know, I know we've we've been kind of talking about pre is the kind of change in, you know, things like salary expectations over the years. Um, and I think that's providing a kind of new dynamic to the, to the situation. 
And I think also if we think about Alison Clark that we had on the podcast um, a month or so ago, we were talking about potentially the need for, especially the big agencies to not kind of slash and burn as it were and really think mm. carefully about their margin. Because I think whatever kind of financial projections have been put in place where maybe you both as independent agencies potentially have a little bit more movement and ability to make more independent decisions, sometimes in those bigger groups, there's going to be bigger conversations, I would suggest, around margin and how much movement there is for people, right? Yeah, I mean, I think going, certainly going into into next year, um, without, without sounding too bleak, I think there is a bit of a decision, you know, you've got to make in terms of, you know, you've got pressure from the, the cost base, the staff cost base, Um which I think we'll probably talk about a bit more in detail in a minute. But then, you know, you've got the, the pressure from the other side in terms of clients not wanting fees to go up because they're trying to control their cost base. So if you're going to want to continue to invest and grow next year, you're going to have to take a bit of a hit on the margin. Yeah, makes sense. Dean, over to you in Sydney. Thank you for joining us from there. What's your view on on really where, I mean, you've really been there. I know that you were kind of really having to turn work down for many months because um, the need for talent was just so acute. Where where do you think you, where are you now and, and what are you really looking forward to for the next year? I think there's been a slight easing in the fight for talent, but not, uh, not a great deal. So the first six months of the year, what we would say is like a, a great agency that normally we find it easy to attract talent for. We were really struggling to fill their jobs and we're having to send out so many headhunt messages just to get one or two people in the mix. The second half of this year, that has shifted and there is more of a flow for talent coming through. But I still think that remains more for agencies that have got a great employer brand versus agencies that don't. I also think um, there's there's still a shortage in PR for two core reasons. One, um, in COVID, there were very few entry-level talent hires brought into the industry. So then towards the end of 2020 and 2021, that had a knock-on effect, uh, having no, no one being promoted to AE or SAE level. This year, that means that there's been less people getting promoted to the AM level. And I think What's happened there is the PR industry has caught up because we've been seeing a lot faster promotions across the board in general. Um, so I, it would be interesting to see what's happening around training and development to support that. Um, and then the second thing is I think PR still really struggles to bring talent in, experienced professionals from a non-PR background. And so you've always got, let's say, the account director level. You've got all of these agencies that are growing. There's a need for more account director candidates. But there's the same talent pool because we can't bring in people from outside the PR industry. And there's some movement there, but really not a lot. So I think the the recruitment challenge still is very strong, but maybe there's been a slight easing there. So it's interesting to think about the timing of it's really hard to predict what's going to happen next year, isn't it? I think we're all kind of moving into another unknown, even more probably yeah. than we've been through the pandemic. We've obviously learned lots of things and, you know, probably put in practices and we have experience of dealing with something quite extreme. But I don't know about you, but I just sort of sense, you know, we're such an agency that can just spin in a quarter and be in a very different place. Are you, are you kind of, I mean, obviously not wanting to scare everybody in the industry, but I do feel that there's possibly a moment at which this might bite. I, I think, I, I mean, when we've talked about this previously as well, I, I feel like we're potentially looking at a very different jobs market over the next six to 12 months. Um, a lot depends on, you know, how... 
um, the government deals with the current situation economically. Um, but I think there's certainly going to be some some bigger questions asked around job security. I think if I was looking for the obvious trends that might happen in an economic downturn in the current climate, what I think you'll find is smaller and medium-sized agencies will be more conscious of hiring and perhaps hire slower and be very careful around that and make sure that any new hires are very considered. Um, but then I think for larger agencies, they will probably think less about um, uh, reducing headcount in order to meet those numbers, like you were saying before. So I think you might have a bit of a vicious cycle from a candidate standpoint in that you've got larger agencies cutting team sizes, you know, lots of new recruits that have come in that are under two years, easy redundancy material from a large agency that, like you said, manages kind of headcount like a spreadsheet. And then you've got the smaller agencies that potentially were looking to recruit desperately this year, but actually are potentially putting the bricks on a little and um, perhaps looking more at the freelance market to ensure they're not overstretching themselves from a salary burden standpoint because the margins are more of a struggle. So, you know, it could be a very difficult um, situation for people in the next six to 12 months. I mean, hopefully it won't be. But I think if we think about the great resignation, it was such a test of who your employer was, really, wasn't Absolutely. it? So actually, this mm. is yet another test over the next six to 12 months of who your employer is, because we've seen it. I mean, how many times have we seen it that we literally... You know, people lay off and then they lay the junior staff off and then we all grow again and then they can't get the junior staff. It's like a cycle that's been, I don't know, I've been in this game for 25 years and I've seen it many times over and we don't ever seem to be able to change it. So how do we change that? Could we change it? I, th I think there's uh, something to think about, which is the the whole kind of retention piece, um, because, you know, we... We talk about it a lot within the industry in terms of people stay somewhere for a year or two and then move on, whether that's by choice or by a situation. Get that a better salary. Of, yeah, or <laughs> the situation that we're, you know, potentially going to see next year. But, you know, kind of when you kind of look at a business and its performance, it kind of relates heavily to its culture within the organization. And really, as a, someone that employs someone, you want people to stay with you for the long term because, you know, those people embody the culture of the business. And, you know, when you invest time, resources, effort into creating that, it's that that kind of really delivers value. So I think retention is going to be really key as we go into next year. I think I think there'll be agencies, like you said, the small mid-size that will think carefully, but I think they will still continue to add. But the re retention piece is just going to be, I think, an even more important factor. And, you know, can we shift this mindset where people think that they need to move every couple of years to get a pay rise or create an opportunity for them to go further in their career. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that will come out of it. We can start seeing much more longer term commitment in a way from both parties um, to kind of career and people. I think that's it, isn't it? As a challenge to, as an employer, you want to focus on, you want to d develop the team and gr invest in the team. But there's an external vernacular of the industry and assumption that can happen i think you know a lot of the 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 agency behavior in covid for instance of your jobs are all safe and then the next week making people redundant had an impact for every employer in our industry and i think it's a, it's about integrity for me um you know i think um you know you have an employer brand and that isn't you know as much as any comms that we do it can't be built on you know, um, smoke and mirrors. It has mm -hmm. to be built on a genuine commitment to your team. And, you know, 
I think there's there's always a natural turnover in any business as it grows and develops. But retention is something that every employer should be looking for, not as a commitment from the employee, but from the employer, you know, saying, OK, well, how, what, how can we make this nearly impossible to leave? You know, how can we develop those people to have a career rather than a job? And it's a challenge for the new recruits, especially to believe you when they've come from cultures where that's all been there before, you yeah, know, it's but it's just past. been a thin yeah. veneer across a spreadsheet that they're willing to reduce the number of uh, at the flick of a switch. I think the the trust point that you mentioned is the key thing mm. um, in terms of the, you know, from from both parties uh, in terms of trusting the organization and trusting the team. And I think it's down to the organization to show you that they trust the team. Um, and you also, you, you get that back. Um, so if you can create an environment where there's, there's two-way trust, you know, we can get into things like quiet quitting. Quiet quitting is because there's a breakdown of trust between employer and team member. They're, they're not in a place to be able to come to you and say, I'm not happy in my job anymore, or I want this opportunity, or do you know what? I see X, Y, and Z people within my peer group getting paid X percentage more than you do here. So if that really is a thing, um, that is because of a breakdown of trust. Yeah, no, I can totally see that as foundation of any team. Thinking also about clients, I mean, going into next year, there may be clients that kind of have to take their foot off the gas on certain projects and so forth because of um, the downturn in the economy. But I can also see those clients expecting those teams to be there for when they want to dial back up again, right? And otherwise, potentially, that puts the future of that long-term client also at risk. I mean, it's always, you know, thinking about it from an entrepreneur standpoint, there's opportunity and risk with anything, right? And I think it it will be the same situation for in-house teams. You know, there'll be much more considered employment, for instance. There'll be much stricter control of salary budgets and burdens. So actually agencies become an opportunity to expand expand your um, capabilities and your resource with more of a flexible budget than potentially salary burden. So there's an opportunity for agencies too. But you have to be that consistent team for for your clients. You can't just have a revolving door, regardless of how it's managed or what the external factors are. And there is a commitment there too. It's about trust there too. You know, clients can't assume or brands can't brand teams can't assume that agencies have, you know, teams that flow like water because whatever the economic situation is, they're willing to change because that reduces trust in the industry as a whole. You know, this is a story that doesn't just talk to recruitment, employment and development and attraction of talent in our industry. It's actually about the quality of work too, you know, onboarding, um, developing teams into, you know, creative processes that are potentially proprietary as well. That all takes time, you know, and a lot of the the challenges that you have in producing great work is the team, you know, fluctuating. So, you know, I think from a brand standpoint, you want to be able to trust your agency teams. You want to be able to expand into it, um, but you're going to be facing a lot of the same challenges, I guess. And, and really wanting, if you're putting all of that investment in, you want to make sure that it's there for the long term, as you say. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think in the last two years, we've seen a massive shift in how agencies are approaching culture and benefits. And there's been such a big focus on that. And we keep getting asked that question week in, week out. What, what are the shifts in the market? How can we keep up with that? One of the things that, and, and I don't know the answer to this, but one of the things that we have sometimes where someone's been at an agency for two to three years, 
often there's a reason they're leaving and it's to do with cultural training development or a line manager just left and, and there's a multitude of reasons but sometimes it can be that they worry that they're in a siloed thinking so they think that if I stick at this PR agency I'm going to have their approach to PR and I now want to jump to the next PR agency to get their way of thinking and start to kind of connect all the dots and so that's probably a challenge for PR leaders to think about how they And then also thinking about some of the surveys that have been done in the last year about, you know, do people want to work in agency or they want to work in house? And I think there were sort of more than 70 percent, I'm thinking now, that were wanting to consider in-house positions. There's a real sort of challenge at an agency level, isn't there now, to really kind of look like the best place to work. I know that you two both (laughs) run exemplary agencies, um, but there is a kind of, you know, the slash and burn type peace and the kind of lack of work-life balance and all of those sorts of things. So the focus on culture and really looking after people is critical. Yeah, I think the it, it's been a big focus for us for years and years um, in terms of the culture piece. I think, you know, the, the smoke and mirrors that we were talking about a minute ago, you know, you've got to really actually deliver on what it is that you've, that you've said in those first and second interviews and kind of live by the values. I think, I think one of the things that we, we've been talking about and thinking about is that, you know, the whole culture conversation has, has kind of evolved a little bit. And certainly when you kind of think about the DEI conversation as well, in terms of just hiring people like you, um, because if it's, if you talk just about culture, you can kind of run into an issue where you're not going to make any progress towards that. But instead, kind of thinking about it more from a values perspective in terms of how someone approaches work, how they work with other people. Um, I think the values alignment is, I think, one of the reasons why people leave an organisation because it doesn't live up to the values in which it says it has. Um, so you told me this in the interview and we're now doing work with X, Y, and Z client. Um, what's happening? Yeah, there's uh, a mismatch. Yeah, there's a mismatch. And I think there's an industry vernacular that's the challenge. We mentioned before around trust and, you, you know, you were talking about the, the kind of smoke and mirrors aspect. But I think, um, you know, unfortunately, the whole industry suffers when you don't have integrity in your recruitment and how you deal with people and your culture within your business. You know, talking about sustainability one minute and then taking 40% of your fee income from fossil fuel clients, for instance, the next. That's that's the kind of um, behavior that undermines the entire industry culture. And there's only so much you can do when you're swimming upstream. You know, I think I've probably spent 90% of my time in recruitment conversations with talent and candidates, especially like Dean was saying, when they're coming from outside of the PR world, trying to convince them that it's not the situation that everyone paints it to be um, because I'll be honest, it's a minority situation that we, we work with integrity, trust, that we focus on DE&I, that we have a structure around that, that we have um, you know benefits that aren't built around poaching talent but actually retaining talent and investing in people. That's a minority you know, and I think something that PR Week's done recently is the, you know, not that recently now, but the best places to work programs and I think that's been really um, impressive at moving standards up across the industry and getting that reputation for agency land to match um, the in-house teams where HR teams and, and kind of talent recruitment has been more of a challenge and been dealt with less like a spreadsheet in the past. And I think actually that's done more, much more than, um, you know, the kind of industry regulators or, 
you know, the groups that, um, you know, the PIC, PRCA and CIPR and et cetera, talking about, okay, here's the standards of recruitment. They've not really done anything, not moved the needle. I think actually that was a good demonstration of how one um, kind of movement and one project can actually demonstrate and elevate standards across the industry. You have to now keep up with these people. Um, but also you can take inspiration from them. I think that was a great program and it shows that there is a bit of light at the end of the tunnel, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. Just thinking, Dean and, and Alex, also we've had this conversation around salary versus culture when people are sort of in the recruitment process and, and really kind of what's getting them through the door and whether kind of people are being seduced by the kind of big headline salary um, and then potentially also maybe what they're being told about the culture, but they're not really going to experience the culture until maybe the first three months of being inside a business. Are you seeing some trends around that in terms of that playing towards you being being able to hire recruitment or having to fight on a salary level and not necessarily a culture level, even though the culture is actually probably what's going to win for everybody long term? Yeah, we it's it's still rare for us to have a candidate uh, consider changing jobs purely based on salary. It's it's 80% of the time it's normally an issue with the training and development, the culture, or or they didn't get the pay rise that they thought of, and then there's all these other underlying issues. So going in with a headline, look at this massive salary, this is what we can poach you on. Uh, it doesn't really work. There has to be more meat around the bones. And and that typically at the moment, I think the number one thing is culture and employer brand. How you're presenting yourself to the world as an agency matters. And then I think the second thing after that is purpose. So the clean creatives or the B Corp or just what you stand for with your values, as Alex was saying. Um, so, but, but then what surrounds all of that is salary. So, the, there's a market trend and cats now know what they're worth. They're getting multiple offers come through the door, but the salary is not the deciding factor as to why they're leaving the job or why they're accepting a job. Unless there's two opportunities on the table that are pretty much the same in their mind and in their gut feeling, then they will probably go with a higher offer purely based. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On that. So salary doesn't always lead the recruitment conversation, but it's obviously a big part of it. So Alex, Dan, how are you finding that situation between salary? Dan, to you first. Yeah, I think I think um, I certainly agree with Dean in the in the fact that it's both elements. Um, you need to bring both, and that is the expectation. And I think 
I think that's positive. I think it's positive for the industry that people are expecting more from us as agencies um, because of, you know, the kind of many stories and the reputation that some have um, within the industry. It's, we've kind of got to push it forwards. And I think it is about both, but I also agree there's, there's a there's a band there you know you, you've got to be still at the right level and competitive otherwise doesn't make sense doesn't make sense um it's going to be a hard sell alex you've also talked about having quite firm salary bandings which has kind of helped you through this process yeah i mean i i think it, it's a challenge isn't it because um i keep going back to this word integrity but i think something that's changed dramatically in the last two or three years um, is transparency. So actually having a salary on the job ads is something we have always been very committed to, but we're now seeing oh, that. that's interesting. A, I've, I've not often seen that, I must yeah, say. Yeah, and I think now more and more agencies are doing that. And I think it's because you don't want to end up in a conversation where someone's salary expectations are miles outside your own. But also it, it, it means the discussions around the package and the discussions around the culture happen sooner. There's not this kind of elephant in the room of, well, how much is it worth? Am I willing, you know, if they've shown up to the interview, you know, they're willing to work for, you know, what the salary band is. But also it's important from a DE&I standpoint, we can't just negotiate with individuals based on how desperate we are for them to join the team at that point in time, because it undermines then the packages we've given to the rest of the team. You know, it's equality is so important, right? So in order to manage that, you have to be able to build this um, this bigger picture, this narrative that says, okay, if you join, then this is what we're hopefully able to bring to you um, as an employer. Um, and here's the career you can carve out and you can craft here too. But I think that transparency is lacking. And I actually, as much as I really, really love what Dean's saying about the, the candidates not seeing salary as the principal reason why they're moving jobs and I really hope and pray that that's the pervading culture amongst candidates um, because certainly someone who works very hard on that cultural aspect and that employer brand, like it's kind of nice to hear that that's significant. But at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's experienced where we've offered a role on a transparent salary and someone who has been told, I'm sorry, we're going to work at Manifest has said, what are they paying you? We'll pay you X amount more because we're desperate. And would that be a significant amount more? I mean, in the US specifically, um, we've had, you know, four candidates over the last 12 months that have effectively just been poached from, you know, turning down other other agencies. But there are also those, those agency brands that are doing that are the ones that kind of, I mean, I can say this because I'm an independent, but you'd have to bribe me to work there. So that's what they do. You know, I mean, I'll be honest, what, what's the other reason to work there? If you're a purpose-driven creative to work somewhere that doesn't have that purpose, doesn't, doesn't have that integrity, sense, you'd have no. to be bribed to work there. And that's what they're doing. I mean, we've we've had so many similar conversations, certainly around um, kind of bands. We did the same thing. We put in place really clear, clear bands. And, it, you know, it was, it was the same argument. You know, we, we had a candidate that wanted X from recruiter because someone else has come in with... You know, at, at the peak of chaos over what was it about, you know, six, 12 months ago, you know, you were talking about 20, 30% disparity. And it was the same conclusion that we came, came to as well. And we were kind of really, really stood by, which was, well, the team that we have are on these salary bands. We can't just bring someone in above them because, because we're desperate. And I think that also contributes potentially 
to agencies that may have kind of entertained that or done that in into um, pay gaps. And well, it doesn't take long for that conversation to get around yeah. amongst teams because we all know that different levels, they're all comparing each other's salaries and it can create a huge amount of I mean, distrust and unhappiness. Dean, Dean, yes, go on, you were going to say. I think um, one of the challenges uh, PR agencies have is being able to have the conversation around counter offers through every stage in the recruitment process. So when we've got a candidate in the mix, we as a team at Latte, we should be 90% certain if they're going to accept a candidate offer or not at pretty much every stage in the process. And that's by getting the candidate really comfortable to open up to us what their reasons are for leaving. But more importantly, what do you like about Manifest or what do you like about Alfred? How does that compare to the other opportunity you're out for? And then pre-closing those, those offers through the process. And so when you get to the very end, you should have uh, either an internal recruiter or a recruitment partner that's being really upfront and saying, hey, do you know what, Dan or Alex, this candidate is out for two other opportunities. I'm, our gut feeling is they're going to accept a counter offer because of these reasons. And then you can decide to pull out of the process or put an offer in and keep your fingers crossed. Um, and I think sometimes managing that process well can avoid getting into the counter offer wars. Um, that are happening. So Dean, also just to follow on from that, thinking about the recommendations that you might make to agencies, you know, in, in the recruitment process, what are you saying is there are the really important things that the agencies need to be achieving right now? I think the interview process leaves um, accounts have a lot of a lot of assumptions are made between the, the hiring manager and the candidate, and it's about eliminating those assumptions and doing a pulse check at every point in the process. Now, the hard thing is if you own an agency or you're, you're a hiring manager and you check in with the candidate, say, "Hey, how do we compare with the two other roles that you're out for?" They're not going to tell you the truth, and and unless you can really use emotional intelligence to get them into the headspace to open up, so doing pulse checks through the interview process, but also um, checking in and saying, hey, do you have any concerns with the role? Are there any areas we haven't uh, we haven't covered for you in detail and allowing them to feel comfortable to ask those questions because I actually find it, when you're in recruitment for so long or, or you're a hiring manager for so long you find it odd when a candidate feels uncomfortable to ask a question that they think might come across in a bad light and I'm like no you're just literally finding out about the role ask everything you need to so that there is no stone unturned so I think pulse checks make them feel really comfortable to state what their concerns and issues are um, and try and manage that salary process throughout the interview process, not just at the very end, uh, are three things I would do. And a conversation that we've also had, Dean, which I think is really an interesting part of the interview process is how much that first interview is also about chemistry and culture yes. and helping people to really yes. get a sense of, of the place that they're about to join rather than, 100%. so why are you here then? <laughs> or that's yeah, a, a 50, slightly 50 more aggressive thing. Yeah, two-way street. And I think uh, what we've found, because we when, the, when we've got a client that says, so why do you want to work here? It's okay to ask that question, but it has to be further down in the process after you've given them a pitch. If it's the first thing that you ask straight off the bat, it's off-putting to the candidate. They're like, I don't know, I'm, I'm here to find out why I want to work here. And it's a hard thing. And, and actually, when I'm hiring into Latte, I find it difficult because I do want to know why are you interested in Latte. So the advice I give a client when it comes to hiring for myself, I'm like, oh, Dean, you need to follow what you're dishing out here. And it's really difficult. But... Yeah, it needs to be 
50% pitch from the agency and then the candidates also pitch themselves as well. So Alex, looking from um, an employer perspective, what advice would you give to candidates through that recruitment process? I think it, it it's coming with a clear idea of what you're looking for. Like Dean was saying, I think understanding not just what it is about your job that you enjoy or don't enjoy, but what is it about the working environment that you enjoy or don't enjoy? Um, there used to be much more of a focus around work-life balance. Um, and I, um, I, I think now it's much more about work-life blend as we were in a hybrid working environment. You know, can I bring my full self to the role? Can I um, bring my interests into this culture? Um, can I be my my full self here? I think that's um, that's something that um, that is very important to me as a as a business leader. That you feel that people aren't putting on this face when they come into the business. That they don't feel they have to perform a role, so to speak. That they're actually here to, um, you know, rather than know their stuff, rather than know their role, so to speak, and be able to swim outside their lane, do their own thing, have that freedom. So in order to do so, you have to ask those questions around culture you have to ask those questions around um you know uh, the ways of working but also you have to go in there with a clear idea of what it is you want because it's very difficult i think to to get that into a conversation without having those indications exactly and i think you know having salary as a transparent thing means that that kind of taboo is gone right so you don't need to be worried or concerned around that area and you can just actually instead talk about the magnetism of the role to you and it's perfectly fine as well from a candidate's perspective to just say, look, I, I don't think this is right for me. You know, not every fit is going to work. And I think one of the biggest challenges is people accepting a role and then regretting it when they arrive. That would That's kind of a dreaded moment from a, a founder's standpoint. I mean, we, we actually offer a bonus if you leave in the first three months in order to try and promote that idea of it's fine to go if it's not Remind working me what out. it's called, Alex. <laughs> I'm not allowed to swear on the podcast. It's called the F off grant because we've never managed to find a better working title for it. But essentially you get 1500 quid to go once you've joined in the first three months um, as kind of a incentive, I guess, to leave if it's not working for you. And then if you decide to stay after your three month probation, then you have to choose someone in the team to give the bonus to who made you feel most welcome. And again, it's kind of demonstrate it's a value that we place on culture too. And if you want to engender a great culture, you also have to provide a meritocracy around it too. You know, there are those people that in the building that just make it a happy place to work, having them rewarded and showing that that's, that's valued by the culture as much as, you know, the other potentially more measurable performance aspects of work is really important to us. But again, it's kind of a statement of intent to new candidates too. Sounds um, like a fantastic policy and definitely a step on from a duvet day. Um, so, <laughs> so Dan, to you, what advice would you give to um, future recruits so through I the process? Coming coming back to some of the stuff that we touched on earlier, I think it's about understanding whether your values are aligned with the organisation and, and you kind of want to do the same stuff. So whether that's work, the type of work, the clients that you're working for. But just digging into that for a second, finding yeah. out about values, right? How do you, how do you think work walking into an interview you figure that out? So I think you could ask a few questions. For instance, it's can you tell me any bits of business that you've turned down recently? For instance, because I know and I'll try not to mention any names, but there's things that we turned down because it didn't align with our values as a business, and we we tell the team that in our monthly. Or maybe what hard business decisions have you had to make on why? Yeah, exactly. Good question. And, and yeah. kind of tell me as. Um, 
you know, as an employer, what, what have you done to show that you live by these values? Okay. That probably comes across quite punchy. Um, if you kind of frame it like that, but I think, but I think you can ask those questions. And I think if you're sat on the side of the table that, you know, Alex or I would be, you'd be like, you know, I kind of like the fact that this person's willing to come in here and ask these tough questions because you need that within the culture of the organization to make a culture what it is because ultimately whilst you know we can set direction you know we spend lots of time putting in place kind of policies and the benefits to back up the culture the culture is made by every single individual within the business and that's such an interesting question isn't it because you're both founders right you live and breathe you are the person sort of helping to architect you know that that and curate that culture how how are you sort of getting the, the people around you to also sort of carry that with them in the, the interview process because you can't always guarantee that every interview it's going to be the interview that you're in. And I think that's where, for us, the DE&I processes we've put in place have really helped. Um, and it's made our recruitment much better in terms of getting candidates that stick around. And, um, you know, we've always had really good retention, which is great, but also not unique, I guess, amongst independent agencies where you're able to put your arm around people and they're able to progress probably a little faster. But... Um, but within our kind of structures, we have to have someone from every level of the business within the interview process. We have to balance. You can't remove unconscious bias from the recruitment process, but you can balance unconscious bias. So we have to make sure that you're meeting a wider group of the team. And what I love in that situation is I get asked the questions, OK, well, what business have you turned down? And I love it. You know, it's not principle till it's cost you money. So you get to talk about the stuff that no one asks you about usually. But then what's it like to work here gets fielded by an account executive because realistically they're much more authentic in their experience than I am. And everyone's free to say as, you know, as they please. They're not always in the same room as me either. So all of that's balanced. But I think it, the more people you can involve in that recruitment process, the more you potentially sell the business to the right people, you know. And I think there is this idea that, you know, you meet the founder or you meet the CEO, you meet the managing director and it's kind of their job to sell to you and it's your job to sell to them. That that interview process is kind of broken. It should be a case of meeting and connecting, like you said, with chemistry. Those words are, are fantastic. But I'll be honest, when I entered the the jobs market out of uni, that wasn't the way an interview was. You turned wasn't up Wasn't it in the pub? You turned up well <laughs> I, I, I wish. You turned up bricking oh, yourself. You in the pub. You know, and you'd had to speak to someone who, you know, was very had formal. Formal list of questions to ask you, which were like the questions that, that Dean was saying as well, like what what made you interested in manifest? I mean, I'll be honest, I have probably asked that question out of just pure by rote in the past. Because you said hello sexy on your front page, right? Wait, welcome home sexy. It's, it's, <laughs> welcome there's a big story sexy. behind that. There's a big story behind that. But yeah, there's that yeah. as well. But um yeah, I mean, it's because you're looking for that cultural connection and you want to kind of fast forward to it as well. But one of the biggest jobs for me in the recruitment process or in any recruitment process, not just for an individual, is to break out of interview mode, try and make it a conversation. I feel like... I think we've all just got to get back to the pub now. I mean, we, we, An we do interviews, we do interviews in all different environments <laughs> as well. Yeah, I think in the boardroom, that's for us, it's the final stage of interview. So we do coffee shops and we do pubs and we do, you know, kind of open spaces in the, in the office. Like, I think it's important to try and not feel like it's a formal one-to-one, your, your answers are being written down kind of vibe. You know, it should be much more, what do you want to know and what do we want to know? And let's get to the, the yeah, bottom of that. It's... It is, it's a two-way thing. 
Um, and, so, and certainly in the context and the environment that we've all been kind of working over the past couple of years, it's been hard to attract talent. So I think this has hopefully kind of shifted many to realize that it's not just getting someone into a room, grilling them, who gives the best answers, we'll give them the job. It's about the bigger picture um, and understanding is this the right place for them? Um, so I think it's about both perspectives and you can only do that through a conversation yeah. rather than a, a list of questions. I think also what works best is, um, and what could help PR agencies, is they have an interview prep pack, which tells the candidate and makes them feel comfortable. Hey, ask us these questions. This is what you're going to be doing in the interview. At Manifest, you'll be sitting out in the team, so don't be shy, interact type thing. Because we spend a lot of time prepping candidates, and the more prepared they are, the better they are. And we've had some clients say, oh, we don't want them to be prepped on questions, or we don't want them prepped on this. But it's like, it, it is a little bit like a pitch, even if it is a conversation, you still feel like you're in the spotlight. So if you know, this is what I've got to show, and this, I, it's okay for me to ask these questions, you'll have a much more fruitful interview. And I also think hiring managers need a lot more training across the board, because they ask their four questions and they go, oh shit, I don't know where to go next. And, and they just start talking about the role again and the interview goes off track. And then candidate comes out and says, oh, yeah, it was great, but they spoke about, they spoke 80% of the time, I only got to speak 20%. Yeah, I think that can obviously make a huge impression. I think there is a massive lack of training, isn't there, about how to recruit and interview and so forth in our industry? I mean, I've read, read books. You know, that's the yeah. only thing. There's um, Laszlo Block's work rules is really good um there's and a, there's a bunch of books around you know reducing bias bias in in recruitment but i think um what dean's just saying is it's also difficult isn't it because you want um you know there's a difference between preparedness and scripts you know and i think you know that's something from a candidate's perspective and an employer's perspective you know the worst time is when it's just wooden script or you know, it's like watching Newsnight. You get you ask a question and you get a completely different response back because they've not practiced the answer to that question. So, you know, it shouldn't feel like a Q and A. It should feel like a conversation, and that means preparedness helps that happen on both sides. Yeah, no, absolutely. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like we could roll on for another hour. But I have a feeling that we are gonna have to wrap up, even though I feel mm -hmm. like there's just so much wealth of experience in this room that I think can really help the industry. So listen, thank you so much to, to, to all of you. And thank you so much to Dean for joining us from, what is it, midnight in Sydney? So yeah. Yeah, it's nearly 1am oh, now. Oh wow, and <laughs> you're still smiling, thank you. I'll like, recruiter on the Power Week podcast, I'm not giving that up. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us, thank you. And, and also really for kind of helping everybody that's listening here to, to really help think about, you know, the challenges that they've got ahead. And I'm sure that your advice has been incredibly helpful. So thank you so much. No worries. Thanks, Frankie. So now let me welcome UK PR Week editor, John Harrington, who is joining us fresh from Athens. Hello, welcome back. Hi, hi, Frankie. Yes. Did you have a good time? I had a really good time, thank you. Two weeks off, missed one podcast recording, which is a shame, but then I was sunbathing and um, looking Having at the Having a lovely time. Drinking Mythos. Great. So yeah. you're now ready to tell us what this week's top and flop are. Yes. So for top this week, Frankie, we're going for Asda. Um, I've been quite impressed with how some of the big supermarket groups have gone about their comms during the cost of living crisis. It's not, it's not flashy, really, but I think there's been some quite well-targeted sort of initiatives that I think are in tune with the public mood, um, while more people, of course, are counting their pennies. 
um, in the past week or so, Asda has launched an offer where anyone aged 60 and over can buy a super roll, unlimited tea and coffee for £1 in all of its cafes throughout November and December. It's part of um, Asda's winter warmer promotion, which also includes £1 uh, meal deal for children. Um, apparently, the, that, that deal um, generated more than half a million meals sales uh, since it launched in June. So the, this launch was uh, covered widely in the national and local media. Uh, what do you think of Asda's work here, Frankie? Um, and how do you think supermarkets are communicating generally in the crisis? Well, I think it's it's there are so many systemic economic issues around this cost of living crisis, but there are some very simple things that are in the purview potentially of supermarkets where they feel they can really make a difference. And one of those is their own cafeterias. They have cost control over those cafes. They also know that it's a place that the elderly and communities and young, you know, young children are coming to when their their, their mums and dads are obviously doing the shopping. So they've obviously seen a, a massive opportunity where they can really make a difference. So I think it's to be applauded. And it's obviously something we've seen on the back of the Iceland initiative as well, where they were obviously kind of um, extending sort of short term loans to people and so forth so that they could um, uh, afford their, their their food shopping. So I, I think it's um, I think it's fantastic. And hopefully we'll see more of that coming forward, given these are also organisations that do make quite heavy profits. So yes. it's good for them to give back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, OK, moving on to flop. Um very different situation here. We're going for um, two former Spanish football stars. This is a bizarre situation um, that occurred on, on Twitter on Sunday. You may have seen uh, Iker Casillas, who's a um, former um, Spanish goalkeeper. He tweeted, I hope you respect me, I'm gay. His former Spain teammate, Carlos Puyol, responded, it's time to tell a story, Iker, um, and then added a kiss emoji. This all sounds like quite unusual. Um Cassius later said his Twitter account was hacked. Um, I mean, I'm not really sure where to start with this. It does sound like it was hacked, though, don't you think? I, I mean, I that have is no a sort idea. of awful thing that somebody would do on somebody's Twitter account because they know it potentially would be quite damaging. I mean, maybe, but it also seems like I. I'm, I mean, I, I, the thing is, I, I we, we don't know. Let's be honest. But um, if we take um, his word for it that it, his account was mysteriously hacked, um, Poyle severely misjudged his attempt at humour here. I mean, that's probably being kind. You know, at a time when there's rightly such a focus on prejudice in football, um, including homophobia, incidents like this um, at best seem cloth-eared and totally out of step. And at worst, you know, you could say it might appeal to unsavoury elements in the beautiful game. Puyol later apologise, I should say. Um, bizarre, but I don't think anyone's come out well from this. Obviously, some sympathy for Cassias if his account was hacked. Um, what, have you got any more thoughts? Do you think this is just one of those bizarre moments or is there um, a real kind of failure of, of communication at the most basic level here? I mean, I think it's really hard to say, isn't it? On one level, just listening to the, the initial tweet, it did sound a bit like it had been hacked. I mean, you know, I've got a nine-year-old. I know, I know kind of what, what kids can do and, and what people can do when it comes to sort of thinking that they're being a bit funny on somebody's social media channel. So I can definitely see that. And then if it wasn't that, then, then obviously it's tone deaf, completely misjudged. And yeah, I, I mean, what, what is there to say? I mean, it's completely out of step. Yeah, agree. Great. Thank you so much, John. Welcome back. Thank you. So that brings us to the end of this week's show. We hope you enjoyed it and we look forward to you joining us next time. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.